The following program is brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to From the Pulpit on the Restoration Radio Network. This show will air weekly on Thursday nights and will be a presentation of the most informative sermons, conferences, and lectures from Catholic clergy on critical topics for Roman Catholics to find their way and to hold their faith during this horrendous crisis, the modernist heresy, which permeates the Church and the world at every level. From the Pulpit is underwritten by True Restoration Press and True Restoration Media, with streaming videos and membership subscriptions available at truerestoration.org. And while a portion of the operating costs of this program are underwritten by True Restoration Press, we are truly dependent on listener donations for the continued success of these broadcasts. Restoration radio programs, including this one, are available on the iTunes Store and are syndicated on TuneIn and Stitcher. You can follow the work of True Restoration at truerestoration.blogspot.com on our Facebook page and our recently added daily news feed, which is linked on the blog homepage. On tonight's broadcast, we will conclude a series of sermons on Vatican II, presented by His Excellency Bishop Donald Sanborn, Rector of Most Holy Trinity Seminary in Brooksville, Florida. This series began on August the 8th and has aired over a five-week time span. It has taken us right to the root of the problem, which, without question, has caused the near-complete destruction of everything once recognizable as the Roman Catholic Church, her institutions, her liturgy, her doctrine, and her disciplines, the Second Vatican Council. If you missed any prior broadcast in this series, you may listen to them on demand at any time at the Restoration Radio homepage by clicking the From the Pulpit series links. Tonight, for the finale of our Vatican II series, we will air the final three and arguably the most powerful sermons in this series. We will be first instructed this evening on the error of collegiality. In the second portion of the program, we will learn about the evil disciplines regarding ecumenism. And in the last part of the program, we will conclude with a forceful finale on the subject of false doctrines and evil disciplines regarding marriage. Let us now join Bishop Sanborn as he wraps up this series. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost, Amen. Today I would like to do another installment of my series of sermons on Vatican II and speak about the error of collegiality. The constitution of the church is strictly monarchical. It is the teaching of the church that all ecclesiastical power, which derives from Christ, is vested in the Pope and in the Pope alone. The Pope, therefore, has universal, supreme, and immediate jurisdiction over all the faithful. That is, he has the power from Christ to rule each and every Catholic without exception, and he is not obliged to pass through anyone else, notably a bishop, in order to exercise this power. Furthermore, this power is supreme, that is, there is no earthly authority above the Pope. 
the Pope chooses bishops and confides to them a certain part of the flock. This is called a diocese. The power of the bishop, therefore, derives from the Pope and may be removed by the Pope at any time. Now, Vatican II changed the constitution of the Catholic Church. Although it is Christ himself who constituted the Church as monarchical, this council has changed what Christ has set down. The Vatican II document, Lumen Gentium, is where we find this change. It is called the Dogmatic Constitution on the Church. And it says that the subject or the possessor of the supreme power in the church is the college of bishops with Peter as its head. In paragraph 22, it says, the order of bishops is the successor to the college of the apostles in their role as teachers and pastors. And in it, the apostolic college is perpetuated Together with their head, the supreme pontiff, and never apart from him, they have supreme and full authority over the universal church. But this power cannot be exercised without the agreement of the Roman pontiff. The Lord made Peter alone the rock foundation and holder of the keys of the church and constituted him shepherd of his whole flock. It is clear, however, that the office of binding and loosing which was given to Peter was also assigned to the College of Apostles united to its head. Now, although this document avoids the heresy of saying that the College of Bishops may rule and act independently of the Pope, nevertheless, it substantially alters the notion of the papacy and of the monarchical constitution of the church. Because Christ did not confide to a college of bishops the supreme authority of the church. He confided it to St. Peter. Nor is there any case in history where a college of bishops is ruling the church. Yes, from time to time, the Pope will call the bishops together in council, but that is his prerogative. He may or may not elect to do that. He is not bound to do that, because all power rests in him. The doctrine of Lumen Gentium was so hotly contested that the council saw fit to add an explanatory note to the document. But this explanatory note merely made matters worse, for it said that when the Pope acts on his own, he does it as head <clears throat> of a permanent college of bishops which always and necessarily exists. Now, do you see what that means? That means that he is acting, even when he acts alone, even when he decrees something, he is acting as the head of this body. 
So it is really the whole body acting and not merely just him. And that is an alteration of the constitution of the Catholic Church. That makes the Catholic Church into something that is ruled by a body of bishops which has a president. That is not what Christ set down. That is not in accordance with the definitions, the teachings of the Catholic Church. The doctrine of Vatican II, which is repeated by the new code of canon law, changes the constitution of the Catholic Church. For by it, the College of Bishops, and not the Pope alone, is the possessor of the supreme power. And even when the Pope acts alone, he is acting as the head of the College of Bishops. And this changes the church from a monarchy into an oligarchy of bishops. It is contrary to revelation and to the institution of Christ to change the constitution of the church. It is Christ who set it down. And what Christ has set down for the church, the church is not free to change. The monarchical constitution of the church is not something which evolved over the centuries. It is something that is instituted by Christ. And just as the seven sacraments are, just as the holy sacrifice of the Mass is instituted by Christ, so also is this monarchical institution of the Catholic Church, its constitution as a monarchy, that is of divine institution by Christ. And so to change the church in such a way from a monarchy to an oligarchy of bishops is essentially to found a new religion. For such a religion does not bear the mark and the stamp of Christ who gave his power to Peter alone. It is de fide, that is, of the faith that the Church of Rome is monarchical. The Council of Florence stated this, and the First Vatican Council in 1870 repeated this. We must believe this. This is part of our faith. Now, collegiality was introduced in order to dispense with the papacy. Paul VI said back in the 1960s that the Papacy was the greatest obstacle to ecumenism. And if you recall, at the beginning of this series of talks, I said to you that the spirit and driving force of the changes was ecumenism, to make the church into the ecumenical bride, to prepare her to enter into a union an amalgam of all churches. And we see this now at the, at the very doors. It is at our threshold, what they are about to do. They are impatient to get something done by the year 2000. And so, since the papacy was the greatest obstacle to ecumenism, it was clear that the papacy had to, in some way, go. And that's what they have done. 
they could not simply dispense with the papacy. They could not take it away because this would have stirred up the indignation of the average Catholic in the pew. He would have understood that that is an alteration of the church's divine constitution to simply do away with the papacy. So it was necessary to retain the appearances and, and office of the papacy, but at the same time to strip it, to alter it, to denature it in such a way that it loses all of its power and influence. And so the power was taken from the Pope and given to a college of bishops by Vatican II. They did the same thing with the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass. The Holy Sacrifice of the Mass, the Mass that you see here, was an obstacle to ecumenism. Do you think that a Protestant would kneel down and adore the Holy Eucharist when the priest raises it above his head? Do you think that the, the Latin liturgy is something that would be appealing to a Protestant who feels that he needs merely to open up a Bible and decide for himself what to believe? Of course not. They had to get rid of all of those things in order to be pleasing to Protestants and to other religions. And while they retained the name of the Holy Sacrifice of the Mass in certain cases, or at least had the idea of the Mass, they completely denatured the Mass made it into something new and different so that it is no longer recognizable as the Mass that existed up to the time of Vatican II. And they have done the same thing to the rest of the religion. While on the one hand they preach indissolubility of marriage, on the other hand they give out many, many tens of thousands of marriage annulments a year and ruin the institution of marriage. These are but a few examples of how they have kept the whole external structure but have completely sucked out of it its true Catholic nature. And we must recognize these changes and let no one say, and I have said this many times, let no one say that Vatican II merely changed forms or external observances. It has changed the, the guts of the religion. It has changed its essence. And if we are to maintain the faith in this time, we must resist these changes of Vatican II. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. We hope you're enjoying tonight's episode of From the Pulpit. Please be sure to visit truerestoration.org and click on the True Restoration media link to view our available streaming videos and membership subscriptions for purchase and direct download. These purchases will help us continue to bring you the best content and show guests in the Catholic world today. And now, we present the continuation of tonight's program. Today, we will talk about the evil disciplines that were approved by Vatican II and which have emanated as a result of Vatican II. Catholic discipline 
is always a reflection of the Catholic faith. The Church makes disciplines which are in accordance with the faith and which are conducive to the faith. Examples, genuflection, because our Lord Jesus Christ is present in the tabernacle, and kneeling when our Lord's presence is exposed, for example, at benediction. These are practices instituted by the Church in conformity with the Catholic doctrine concerning the Holy Eucharist. When there is a mixed marriage and a Catholic is marrying a non-Catholic, the non-Catholic must promise to raise the children Catholic because that is in accordance with the Catholic faith, that the Catholic faith is the one true faith, and that the purpose of Catholic matrimony is to bring more Catholics into the world and to train them in the faith of Christ, which is the Catholic faith, and thereby to bring them to heaven and have them praise God for eternity in the beatific vision. And so you see why the church requires that. Now, if somebody said, when the Blessed Sacrament is exposed, we're all going to sit down, you would say, there's something wrong with that. that sitting is not a, a position of respect. It is not a position of adoration. And so you would see a difference between the Catholic belief and the Catholic discipline. Now, the general disciplines of the Church are infallible. That is to say, those disciplines which are approved for the whole church, they are infallible, which means that the Pope cannot have the whole church do something which is sinful. It doesn't mean that a local bishop is infallible when he makes certain disciplines, but it means that the general discipline of the Catholic Church is infallible, that we could never commit a sin in following the general discipline of the church. This is the teaching of the church. And the reason why is because Christ gave a commission to the church to rule. And he also said, I'll, I will be with you all days, even to the consummation of the world. And therefore, with this commission to rule in his name and with the assistance of Christ, the church says that it is infallible in its general disciplines. These disciplines, however, are not irreformable. So it doesn't mean that one pope cannot undo something that another has done. It simply means that never could we be led into sin by the general discipline of the church. When we say that doctrines are infallible, we mean that they are truly irreformable. That is a different type of infallibility. They are truly irreformable. A pope cannot come along and undo the doctrinal teachings of a previous pope or a previous general council. But conceivably from time to time, popes can and have made certain disciplines which they feel are more conducive to the general good of the church. But always they must be in conformity with the Catholic doctrine. And they always have been. But no pope, for example, could prescribe 
a discipline that would be sacrilegious. A discipline with regard, for example, to the Holy Eucharist that would be sacrilegious. And let us for a moment review the general argument that I gave at the beginning of this series, and that is this. If the Novus Ordo has promulgated doctrines, worship, and or disciplines contrary to the Catholic faith, then we must conclude two things. First, that Vatican II and its subsequent reforms are a substantial change of the Catholic religion. They are a corruption of it, just like Protestantism is. And two, that the perpetrators of those non-Catholic reforms, namely Paul VI, John Paul I, and John Paul II, are not true Catholic popes, but are false popes, because true Catholic popes are preserved from error in these areas of promulgation of doctrine, worship, and general discipline. So if there is an error, if there is a contradiction in their teaching to what has gone before, then we know right away that they are not true popes, because true popes are preserved from error. And all it takes is one single contradiction. It is like putting a pin in a balloon. A single pin will burst the whole balloon. And so also a single contradiction in the integrity of Catholic doctrine, Catholic worship, and Catholic discipline bursts their whole balloon and proves that they are not genuine Catholics or popes. Now, the disciplines that we are going to look at today, the evil disciplines of Vatican II, are those which concern ecumenism. You remember that I talked to you about modernism and about ecumenism. And ecumenism is that idea that the Catholic Church is not the one true Church of Christ, but is one of many Christian churches which make up as a whole the Church of Christ, as many branches make up a tree. And all of these Christian communities and churches must seek the unity of the church with other Christians, that is, with schismatics and heretics. And already this is a heresy because it says that the Catholic Church is not one. And it is the teaching of the church that it is one. And it is the teaching of the church that it is the one true church. So already, right from the get-go, we see that we are in heresy. But now let's look at the evil disciplines that were promulgated as a result of this spirit of ecumenism. Vatican II, first of all, said that there was a hierarchy of truths, some truths more important than others in the Catholic faith, and that this hierarchy of truths should be respected in ecumenical dialogue. Now this at least implies that certain truths can be dispensed with or forgotten about, and others are not negotiable. Secondly, Vatican II called for joining in with heretics and schismatics in prayer, and even having joint worship, communication in sacred things, as it is, as it is called, in certain cases. And it also called for educating the clergy, particularly in the seminaries, 
about ecumenism. And specifically, it permits intercommunion with the Eastern schismatics. Intercommunion is to either receive, either for a Catholic to receive Holy Communion from a heretic or a schismatic, or to give Holy Communion or other sacraments to heretics and schismatics. For Catholics to do that. And this is actually permitted by Vatican II in the 1960s. It was something always considered a mortal sin by the Church. And listen to, the, to Vatican II. It says, In view of the principles just noted, Eastern Christians who are separated in good faith from the Catholic Church, that means Greek schismatics, if they are rightly disposed and make such a request of their own accord, may be given the sacraments of penance, the Eucharist, and anointing of the sick. Moreover, Catholics also may ask for those same sacraments from non-Catholic ministers in whose church there are valid sacraments as often as necessity or true spiritual benefit recommends such action and access to a Catholic priest is physically or morally impossible. So it means that Greek Orthodox, that is Greek schismatics, may receive penance, hold the Eucharist and extra unction, or they call it anointing of the sick, from Catholic priests and vice versa. Catholics can go to Greek Orthodox for a, a true spiritual benefit for sacraments. And this is intercommunion, which has always been condemned by the Church because it is a violation of the principle that the Catholic Church is the one true faith. It says, further, given the same principles, a common sharing in sacred functions, things, and places is permitted for a just cause between Catholics and their separated Eastern brethren. That means, for example, a Greek schismatic deacon could take part in a Catholic Mass on the altar. And this, these things were always condemned. So there is a change of discipline and a change of discipline which reflects a change of doctrine. The 1983 Code of Canon Law repeated those permissions and extended them to Protestants. Canon 844 says, Whenever necessity requires or a genuine spiritual advantage commands it, excuse me, commends it, and provided the danger of error or indifferentism is avoided, Christ's faithful, for whom it is physically or morally impossible to approach a Catholic minister, may lawfully receive the sacraments of penance, the Eucharist, and anointing of the sick from non-Catholic ministers in whose churches these sacraments are valid. So it means that you can go to Greek schismatics in order to receive those. The next paragraph says, Catholic ministers may lawfully administer the sacraments of penance, the Eucharist, and anointing of the sick to members of the Eastern churches not in full communion with the Catholic Church, if they spontaneously ask for them and are properly disposed. The same applies to members of other churches which the Apostolic See judges to be in the same position as the aforesaid Eastern churches so far as sacraments are concerned. So, for example, today, the, you may go to the Polish National Church. That is a schismatic church, 
but they have now open communion between the Novus Ordo and the Polish National. And the same is true for Greek Orthodox, Greek Schismatics. And then it says, if there is a danger of death, or if in the judgment of the diocesan bishop or of the Episcopal Conference, there is some other grave and pressing need, Catholic ministers may lawfully administer these same sacraments to other Christians not in full communion with the Catholic Church, understand Baptists, Presbyterians, Methodists, who cannot approach a minister of their own community and who spontaneously ask for them, provided that they demonstrate the Catholic faith in respect of these sacraments and are properly disposed. So the only constraint then is that they believe the Catholic doctrine concerning those sacraments, but they do not have to believe any other doctrines. They do not have to believe, for example, that our Blessed Lady is immaculately conceived. They do not have to believe that the Pope is the head of the Church or is infallible in his doctrinal teachings. And furthermore, they can receive those sacraments even though they are outside the Catholic Church, which is something always always condemned by the Catholic Church. St. Thomas Aquinas said, for example, that the verse in Scripture that thou shalt not give the holy to dogs, words of Christ, refers to the fact that we must not give sacraments to non-Catholics. That is the attitude of the Church towards these things. But more importantly... In 1993, the Vatican came up with, or I should say the modernists who are the inmates of the Vatican, came up with the directory for the application of the principles and norms concerning ecumenism. And that's 25th of March, 1993. And this is an official document which is a true law. It claims to be an application of the 1983 Code of Canon Law, and it is a universal law. It says, quote, the directory gives orientations and norms with universal applications. The directory intends to give obligatory directives. Those are both quotes. So this is a law, and it is a universal law, and it was approved by John Paul II on March 25, 1993, and it contains a note at the end that it annuls all legislation to the contrary. So we're not talking about mere suggestions here, and I think that you will be appalled when you hear what this says. First of all, it lays down the foundations of the ecumenical practices. It says the Catholic Church has all the means of salvation, but it remains imperfect because division harms its credibility and because the responsibility for past divisions fall on it in part. So already we start with the heresy that the Catholic Church, which is the true spouse of Christ, the one true church is in some way imperfect because heretics and schismatics have left it. That is a heresy. The Catholic Church is not imperfect. It is the Church of Christ. Another heresy that it says, the deposit of faith 
is formulated in an imperfect manner and partly trapped by historical contingencies. That the doctrine of the faith is proposed in an imperfect manner. As if the church has made some mistake or has been deficient in some way in proposing the doctrine of the faith. That's a heresy. Another heresy that it contains. The Protestant sects are true. They don't call them Protestant sects, but they call them communities. But this is a nutshell of what it says. That the Protestant sects are true ecclesial communities and as such are means of salvation. Vatican II said the same thing. That they are means of salvation, which is another heresy. For the church teaches outside the church there is no salvation. Pope Pius IX said that that is a most well-known Catholic dogma. Outside the church there is no salvation. That means that only the Catholic Church possesses the means of salvation. And this document goes on to say that they, these Protestant sects, are vehicles for the action of the Holy Ghost, which is simply a repeat of Vatican II, and that moreover, the the part of the truth which they possess is enhanced by their great religious geniuses and these must enrich the spirituality of Catholics. Among their great religious geniuses, are they referring to Martin Luther, who said that our blessed Lord Jesus Christ, God of gods, committed adultery three times? Is that one of their great religious geniuses geniuses who must enrich the spirituality of Catholics? It also says that dogmas which disturb others must be put aside. Quote, respecting the hierarchy of truths and avoiding expressions and ways of presenting doctrine which would be an obstacle to dialogue. End of quote. And the bishop is to be the judge if it is fitting to speak about, about differences in matters of doctrine or morals. Imagine there are cases where we could not speak about the differences between doctrine and morals between Catholics and Protestants. Uh, it says that there must be not there must not be any odious rivalries or proselytism. Proselytism means trying to convert somebody from the Protestant religion to the Catholic. No more of that. And they have even signed agreements with the Greek schismatics there would, that there would be no proselytism. Uh, in the eastern countries, in, in Russia, in Greece, in those countries, the Catholic Church there would not attempt to convert people to the Catholic faith. Now listen to the more practical disciplines. During catechism, one must sensitize the children to ecumenism. Protestants can partially cooperate in catechesis. That means if I were a parish priest in a Novus Ordo parish, I could invite Protestant ministers in or Protestant teachers in to teach the children. One shall take care that priority be given to a consensus when Catholics and Protestants are mixed. That means if they should be together, we cannot talk about things on which they disagree. In the Catholic school, it must, quote, educate concerning dialogue, peace, and interpersonal relations, unquote. 
and the ecumenical dimension must impregnate all religious teaching as well as disciplines, other disciplines such as history. And one must see to the, quote, elimination of language and prejudices which distort the image of other Christians. That means any kind of remark that the other churches are not true, any kind of history, for example, about the Protestant Reformation, which in some way is disparaging, must be cut out. That's known as historical revisionism. Now, this is John Paul II. This is not a bunch of, of crazy theologians or radicals or anything like that. This is John Paul II. This is Carol Wojtyła. Let no one say that he is the pillar of the faith and he's trying to do everything he can for the church and so forth. He is a heretic and he is manifesting his heresy by these principles and by these disciplines. Listen further. The universities have the same rules as the Catholic schools, which I just mentioned. The seminaries, they must take care to inculcate quote, the ecumenical habit before, unquote, before any other serious study, quote, in such a way that the students may be sensitized from the very beginning of their theological studies to the ecumenical dimension of their studies. Between the lines, it means make sure that all of the seminarians are ready to deal on an ecumenical basis with the Protestants and schismatics. And if they're not, get rid of them. Notice that this has to be done right at the beginning. And they shall, they have to touch on such problems as shared worship, proselytism, promoting peace, religious liberty, mixed marriages, the role of the laity, and the place of women in the church. Listen to this. Old book which lack an ecumenical openness, shall be banned. So much for freedom of speech and freedom of the, of the press. That means you, that you would have to take the entire libraries of seminaries from years ago and put them in the dumpster. Because none of them had any ecumenical openness because Pope Pius IX condemned it and Pope Pius XI in a So that means his encyclical would have to be taken off the shelf and burned. This is John Paul II. This is not a radical theologian or some liberal bishop. This is John Paul II saying this. And he says in the seminary, that there will be some Protestant professors, although not a majority. Now, to give you an example, there was a, the rector of the seminary of the Archdiocese of New York at the turn of the century invited in some Protestants to lecture on Scripture. When Rome found out about it, that was St. Pius X, a cable was sent to the rector and told him he was fired. Bypass the bishop. Bishop knew nothing about it. A cable was sent to the seminary. You're fired. 
and a few weeks later, the chaplain of the police department was put in his place. You see how we have come. The other day, I just a woman who was 98 years old, and that means that in her lifetime, we have come from that glory of the faith to this abandonment of the faith in a single lifetime. Furthermore, the Catholic seminarians will learn to relativize dogmas, for it says, quote, it can nonetheless happen that dogmatic formulas might be eventually formulated, even by the magisterium, in terms which bear the traces of changing conceptions proper to a determined epoch. This is exactly what St. Pius X condemned. For the modernists said that the dogmatic formulas are merely vehicles or symbols, that they are not what we really adhere to. They are opening the door here to changing the dogmas of the Catholic Church by saying, well, transubstantiation was a 16th century way of describing the Holy Eucharist. Or the Trinity is a 4th century way of describing God. Or the Immaculate Conception is a 19th century way of describing Our Lady, and so forth. This is the destruction of the Catholic faith. There's nothing left when you say that. And this is John Paul II, not some radical theologian. The seminarian shall learn, quote, to make the distinction between the deposit of faith and the manner by which the truths are formulated, unquote as if on the one hand there is the deposit of faith and on the other hand the truths we believe. Those are one and the same thing. The deposit of faith is the dogma that we believe. There is no distinction between those two things. When the church teaches about the Immaculate Conception or about transubstantiation or about any other dogma, we believe that. That is the deposit of faith. But you see what they want to do. They want to say there is some, some deposit of faith and then there's the way we talk about it. And that's exactly what is condemned in Pascendi, in St. Pius X's encyclical condemning modernism. Exactly what is condemned. And yet, they boldly say it here. And it says the, the seminarians will, quote, have to distinguish between apostolic tradition and ecclesiastical traditions. And the way they mean that is that there are certain non-negotiable items and certain negotiable items. And, quote, to restore legitimate diversity in theology. Translation, so that you can believe whatever you want. To destroy the unity of faith in the Catholic Church legitimate diversity in theology. The seminarian shall realize that there are essential dogmas and secondary dogmas also condemned by, by St. Pius X. You can see that there's this constant theme of non-negotiable and negotiable. And that the seminarians will be mature enough 
quote, to distinguish between real contradictions and apparent contradictions. So they are, they think, and maybe they are right, that people are so foolish to think that when it says in the 39 articles of the Anglican Book of Common Prayer that it is idolatry to kneel down in front of the Blessed Sacrament and worship the Blessed Sacrament, that that is a mere apparent contradiction. For that is what it says. And they also have to understand that the different theological formulations are complementary rather than contradictory, unquote. You can see that this is a, a selling out of the Catholic faith in a wholesale manner. And this is John Paul II. Amongst the clergy, there shall be, quote, a continual updating because the ecumenical movement is in perpetual evolution, unquote. So we don't even know where it's going. It's evolving something like a monkey is turning into a man. The clergy must inspect sermons, catechisms, and newspapers with periodical self-criticism. They must invite regularly a Protestant pastor into the parish. So if I were a priest in the Novus Ordo parish, I would have to, by law, invite in a Protestant minister. Now imagine a Protestant minister in the sanctuary of our church. What a sacrilege and blasphemy that would be. A representative of heresy. But yet, this is John Paul II who orders it. And this is an evil discipline. It says in the places of ecumenical worship, one must hide the Blessed Sacrament out of respect for the different sensibilities. Understand those of Baptists who say it's idolatry. And the nuns in hospitals will take care to call the Protestant minister for the sick Protestants something that was specifically forbidden in Catholic hospitals before the Council. Specifically forbidden, they could not call the Protestant clergy in to assist the Protestant dying. Look it up in books before the Council. With regard to baptism, the repetition of a doubtful baptism performed in the sect of origin... will not be done in public so as not to offend the sect. And there's no more public abjuration if you become a Catholic. If you go from the Protestant religion to the Catholic, you must kneel down before the altar in front of the priest with your hands on the gospel and you must abjure, you must swear that you give up the Protestant religion and that you adhere to the Catholic faith. Now, no more. You just come in. 
intercommunion, what I said before, Protestants receiving Catholic sacraments, Catholics receiving Protestant, is authorized and is, quote, recommended in certain circumstances, unquote. Something always considered a mortal sin. And the only restraint on it is that the Protestant believe the doctrine about the Catholic sacrament. But there's even exception to that. It, it provides for the exception of giving Holy Communion to the Protestant spouse at a mixed marriage without imposing any belief concerning that sacrament. So even though they might think it's idolatry, even though they might say it's only a piece of bread, the priest may come over and put in that person's hand what is supposedly the body and blood of Christ. Now this is sacrilege. This is the mistreatment of a sacred thing. This is an evil discipline. This is the equivalent of taking the sacred host and putting it on the ground and stamping on it. It is the mistreatment of the Holy Eucharist. It would be like taking the chalice and pouring out its contents on the floor. To give what is sacred to to non-Catholics is an abuse of the sacrament of the Holy Eucharist. Make no mistake about it. And it has always been called sacrilege. For penance and extramunction, Catholics may go to Greek schismatics, no problem. Uh, Protestants may go to Catholics for confession and the priest there is not supposed to refuse him, uh, refuse him absolution because he is a heretic. If a man comes to me in the confessional and says, I am a Protestant, I want to go to confession, I have to say to him, I can't hear your confession because you're not a Catholic. You must first embrace the Catholic faith before you can participate in Catholic sacraments. But no, now Anglicans, for example, could go to confession to Novus Ordo priests. When it comes to mixed marriages, all kinds of things open up. Uh, the spouses, the non-Catholic spouse has to respect the conscience of the Excuse me, the Catholic spouse has to respect the conscience of the non-Catholic spouse and the Catholic spouse must study Protestantism. Perhaps read the works of Luther where he says, our Lord committed adultery three times. To be edified by those words. The Protestant spouse shall not promise to raise the children in the Catholic religion. So that's gone. The marriage can take place in the Protestant church as long as there is a deacon or priest present. And a Catholic can be a witness to a marriage between Protestants. 
sharing in liturgical worship in the strict sense, and that's a quote, is recommended with non-Catholics. For, it says, quote, the celebrations, meaning of the Protestants, can nourish the life of grace, unquote. So the heretical services can nourish the life of grace. And one can make spiritual retreats preached by Protestants. And the blessings of the ritual can be given to Protestants, something always forbidden in the past. That is, they could kneel at the communion rail and receive blessings from a Catholic priest. And one can even give Catholic funeral rites to a Protestant, as long as the Protestant minister agrees. So if one of your Protestant relatives should die, according to these rules, he could be brought to the... We would have a Catholic funeral for him, as long as the minister agrees. Now, the conclusion of all of this is that despite whatever appearances and despite the fact that these people have retained our churches, have retained our chanceries, have retained our cathedrals, have retained our seminaries, despite the fact that they can recite our creeds up and down, backwards and forwards, and do so, and give all the appearances of adherence, they are heretics. They are heretics within the walls of our buildings. And they must be recognized as such, denounced as such, and denounced as false. And understand that the reasoning concerning evil doctrine, evil worship, and evil discipline, which I presented to you, holds. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. If you have enjoyed this series, we invite you to listen to a special three-hour broadcast of Restoration Radio, which was aired on October the 20th, 2012, with Bishop Sanborn, Stephen Heiner, Nicholas Wansbutter, and Dr. Piers Hugel, in which His Excellency dissected six of the worst documents of the Second Vatican Council. To listen to this broadcast, go to the Restoration Radio homepage and scroll to True Restoration 13, entitled The Second Vatican Council. And now, we conclude our series. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Today I would like to give you the final sermon concerning Vatican II, the last of this series that I have been doing for many months. In the most recent sermon, we examine the evil disciplines which have emanated from the Second Vatican Council regarding ecumenism. In today's sermon, I would like to point out how this council and the subsequent reforms have given us false doctrine and evil discipline with regard to the indissolubility of marriage. In 1939, the total number of marriage annulments given worldwide was 90. In 1969, the total number of marriage annulments given in this country was 400. 
In recent years, the number has climbed to over 50,000 per year in this country alone. The reason for this staggering change is that there has been a radical overturning of the church's doctrine and discipline concerning marriage. It must be first understood that a marriage annulment is a declaration by an ecclesiastical court that a marriage, although publicly contracted, was in fact invalidly contracted. It means that despite all appearances, there is simply no bond. Annulments have always been granted in the Catholic Church since for as long as human beings shall be human, they will either make mistakes or what is even more common by false pretense, they will enter into marriages without the proper qualifications or dispositions. Hence, if there should be a previous bond of marriage still existing and someone should attempt to marry again, the second marriage would be invalid. Or if one or both of the parties should lack the physical qualifications for marriage, the marriage would be invalid. Or if one or both of the parties should deny or limit the right to have children, the marriage would be invalid or if one or both of the parties should feign consent, that is, pronounce the words of the marriage contract without really meaning them, the marriage would be invalid. These are examples of some of the real reasons for annulments. The discipline of the church was that the presumption was in favor of the marriage contract and invalidity had to be proved. This presumption is based on a principle of law which is known as the queen of presumptions, namely that when any legal or sacramental act has been accomplished, it is presumed to be valid unless the contrary be proven. This proof would take place in an ecclesiastical tribunal. Witnesses were summoned and testimony given. Lawyers for both sides, for the bond and for its annulment, would argue the case and a judge would render his decision. These annulments were difficult to get because marriage is a very difficult thing to do invalidly. Marriage is something so natural to man that the contracting of it takes place simply and easily, almost always without problems. It could be compared to buying a house. Once the title search is done and the contract is duly signed and witnessed and money handed over, the contract is presumed valid and in nearly all cases is valid. Yes, it is possible that the title search could have missed something. But in this case, the plaintiff must prove that you are not the owner of the house. These cases are relatively rare since the process of buying houses is done in an orderly fashion. Marriage, however, is something more basic to man even than owning property. 
what is required for a valid marriage is actually less burdensome than what is required to buy or sell a house. In the modern marriage courts, however, the presumption is that a failed marriage was invalid from the start. Even if there should be 20, 30, or even 40 years of success, including many children, the presumption is that a failed marriage was invalid from the beginning and that the annulment process is simply a matter of bringing to light the reason for the failure of the marriage. It is not a proof which has the burden of dislodging the very heavy presumption that the marriage is valid, whether happy or not. Before the council, the rule concerning matrimony was that you had to be at least 14 to be married if you were a girl and 16 if you were a boy. And up to age 21, you still needed your parents' consent even if you had achieved the legal age of marriage. That means that for a valid marriage, it was necessary that you have the knowledge and discretion of people of 14 and 16 years of age. Which, by the way, reflected the general discipline of most countries, actually, in most cases, demanded more than the law, the civil law far as age requirements. But you had to have that discretion proper to people of 14 and 16 that you understood that the primary end of marriage was the procreation and the education of children, that marriage was indissoluble, and that you could not marry anyone else for as long as your spouse was alive. The priest was instructed to inform you of these things. The only way in which marriage was annulled on psychological grounds before the council was if one of the parties was mentally retarded or clinically insane so that they were incapable of a truly free act when they contracted the marriage. And that had to be proven. Now, people who have been married in their early 20s and beyond are getting marriage annulments not for retardation or psychosis, but for downright silly reasons such as psychological incompatibility or incapability of forming a lasting union or lack of due discretion. 90% of the marriage annulments given today in this country are for these and similar reasons. None of these reasons existed before Vatican II. It may seem amusing, but what married couple did not, at one point or other in their married lives, think of themselves as psychologically incompatible? But the question is pertinent, since if these modern reasons for annulment be true, who then is validly married? Suppose one day you do think we are psychologically incompatible. 
as I'm sure everyone has thought at some point or other. Then if you want to go down to the annulment court, you can start your proceeding. Who is married validly? What marriage could not be annulled? It is really to descend into an absurdity. The answer to this question, however, is that the new marriage discipline in the Novus Ordo makes a mockery of the Catholic sacrament of matrimony. There is nothing serious about it. It is absurd and it makes a mockery of the Catholic sacrament of matrimony. It makes a mockery of the indissolubility of marriage and of the unity of marriage. It makes a mockery of the words for better or for worse which the married couple pronounces on their wedding day. It makes a mockery of our Lord's words, what God has put together, let no man put asunder. It makes a mockery of all of those Catholics in the past who, owing to bad marriages or owing to the adultery or abandonment by their true spouses, had to live out of their live out the rest of their lives in loneliness as a testimony of their love of God above all things and as a testimony of their belief in the indissolubility of marriage how many millions of people in the history of the church had to do that and did so valiantly with courage, sometimes reduced to poverty because of it, and unhappiness. And it makes a mockery of them, for it means that any man that looks at another woman and takes up with her can go and get an annulment for a marriage. And even though he is guilty of grave injustice, worthy of death, can go to this Novus Ordo and have his new marriage blessed and leave his true faithful spouse in misery. And that is a crime that cries to heaven for vengeance. The Novus Ordo clergy are like the Pharisees who through trickery of legalism became hypocrites. The Novus Ordo clergy in externals uphold the law of indissolubility, but inside permit the defilement of matrimony by throwing the cloak of legality over the dung heap of adultery. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, our Lord said. Woe to you because you make clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but within you are full of rapine and uncleanness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you are likened to the whited sepulchres which outwardly appear to men beautiful, but within are full of dead man's bones and of all filthiness. So you outwardly appear to men just, but inwardly you are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. You serpents, generation of vipers, how will you flee from the judgment of hell? 
But is this wholesale destruction of the sacrament of matrimony the work of American bishops who are disobedient to Rome? Absolutely not. The basis for this new annulment process has its roots in the new code of canon law, which contradicts the teaching of the church on matrimony. The traditional teaching of the church is contained in the 1917 Code of Canon Law, which clearly states the primary and secondary purposes of marriage. The primary end of marriage, the Code states, is the procreation and the education of children. The secondary purpose is mutual aid and the easing of concupiscence. And the Holy Office under Pope Pius XII in 1944 issued a condemnation of the idea that the primary purpose of marriage was not the procreation of children or that the secondary purpose was not subordinate to the primary but independent of it. Now what does the Vatican II religion say? The Novus Ordo Code of Canon Law reads this way. The matrimonial covenant by which a man and a woman establish between themselves a partnership of the whole of life is by its very nature ordered toward the good of the spouses and the procreation and the education of the offspring. No longer is there the distinction of primary and secondary purposes. And furthermore, the secondary purpose of marriage, which is subordinate to the primary, is, and which is the good of the spouses, is placed ahead of the primary, which is the procreation and the education of children. Thus, in their accustomed, slippery, and oily manner, they have put over the very error which is called a revolutionary way of thinking by the Holy Office in 1944. This implicit denial of the Church's teaching on this matter is a heresy. Furthermore, it gives rise to the destruction of the sacrament of matrimony which we have witnessed over the past 30 years. For consider it logically, if the primary end of marriage is the good of the spouses, that means that if the spouses are incapable of achieving this good, then the marriage is invalid. In the old discipline, because procreation and education of children was the primary end, if the spouses were physically incapable of doing what was necessary for the procreation of children, then the marriage was invalid. So now, if the spouses are psychologically incapable of making a happy marriage, then their union was invalid. In the end, this means that any marriage that goes bad can be annulled since the very fact that it has gone bad proves that it was invalid. And that is their discipline. People 
who are clearly guilty of the most gross acts of adultery come and ask for an annulment and receive it. And the innocent faithful spouse is left there holding a piece of paper saying that they were never married. And they refuse virtually no one who approaches them because the principle is if your marriage has failed, it was rotten from the beginning. There was invalidity from the beginning. This absurd nonsense that is based on a heresy has wreaked havoc in so many families that it is incalculable. For to be faithful to God and to our faith and even to common sense and the natural law, it is clear that we cannot call invalid something which is clearly valid in the eyes of God. This whole new annulment process is based on condemned error, is based on a heresy of the denial of the primary purpose of marriage, is based on the application of the preposterous modern principles of psychology, whereby no one is really responsible for anything he does. The result is that Catholics who have retained the faith must take a stand in their families against Novus Ordo annulments and against the remarriage of their children or other relatives who have received annulments or even their first marriage to spouses who have been married before but annulled. Such a stand requires heroic virtue for our family ties are very strong. People are very sensitive about their marriages, naturally. And when you do not accept them, you become an outcast. And like St. Thomas More, you have your head chopped off by people who once loved you and respected you, even by your own children. You must love God above all things even above your own children and family, and do what is right and come what may. Remember the words of our Lord, Do not think that I came to send peace upon the earth. I came not to send peace but the sword, for I came to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against the mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's enemy shall be of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh up not his cross and followeth me is not worthy of me. This brings to an end our series on Vatican II and its changes. We have shown that Vatican II and its changes have brought about a substantial alteration of the Roman Catholic faith. They have accomplished this by substantially altering the three essential elements of our faith, doctrine, worship, and discipline. In doctrine, they have denied that the Catholic Church is the one true church and that outside of it there is no salvation. 
they have boldly asserted as Catholic doctrine the heresy of religious liberty condemned by Pope Pius IX. In worship, they have destroyed belief in the priesthood, in the holy sacrifice of the Mass, and in the real presence of Christ in the Holy Eucharist. In discipline, they have further destroyed belief in the Church as the one true Church by approving of the most scandalous and heretical disciplines regarding ecumenism with non-Catholics and have destroyed belief in the indissolubility of marriage by a poorly veiled practice of divorce and remarriage which they pharisaically call annulment. Add to this fact that the perpetrators of Vatican II have wrecked the Catholic Church. Thirty years' time, her institutions are unrecognizable as Catholic. Her seminaries and universities are full of heresy. The liturgy in the parishes is insipid, naturalistic, Protestant, and at times insane, silly, and absurd. The faith is perpetually compromised by appalling acts of ecumenism. The beliefs and conduct of priests and nuns are scandalous. There is a general reign of heresy, degradation, and abomination that no one could have imagined in 1960. And presiding over all of this is John Paul II, the apparent Pope, who busies himself with getting Hindu cow dung on his forehead or inviting bare-breasted females to be lectors at Mass and praising the cult of snakes by the voodoo priests. All of this points to a single conclusion, that the perpetrators of this doctrine, this worship, and these disciplines are enemies of the Catholic Church. They are agents of the devil. They wish to fashion a new Christianity, a new dogmaless church, which, by the way, was predicted even from the last century. And these enemies of the church are none other than Paul VI, John Paul I, and John Paul II. And the clergy, the bishops, which they have appointed and consecrated and ordained. And since the church, whose head is Christ, cannot give us error, false worship, or evil disciplines, there is but one conclusion, that this error, this false worship, and these evil disciplines do not come from the church. They are not the will of Christ for the church. And from this, there is but one conclusion that Paul VI, John Paul I, and John Paul II do not represent the Catholic Church and do not bear the authority of the Roman Pontiff, but are false popes. And in the practical order for ourselves, this gathered knowledge about Vatican II and its changes means that we must retain to the death our traditional faith, not change a single iota of it despite whatever pressures. 
We must denounce the Novus Ordo as false, despite whatever appearances of legit legitimacy it may have. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. We hope that you have enjoyed, but more importantly, found informative and beneficial this week's presentation of From the Pulpit and the Vatican II series. Having a thorough understanding of what has happened to the Catholic Church is only achieved by understanding the source of the problems. For more information on the work of Bishop Sanborn and that of Most Holy Trinity Seminary, you may write to him at the following, The Most Reverend Donald J. Sanborn, 1000 Spring Lake Highway, Brooksville, Florida, 34602. Donations to the seminary are always welcome, needed, and appreciated. We at Restoration Radio would ask that if you found this show to be informative, helpful, or in any way beneficial to you and to your faith, that you would please consider making whatever donation is possible to our apostolate, no matter how small or large it may be. You can do so by going to truerestoration.org and clicking the PayPal Donate button at the bottom of the page. To those of you who have donated to us, a heartfelt thank you for your kindness and generosity. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Feel free to leave us a message on our Twitter handle, at True Restoration, or you can contact us directly via email at mail at truerestoration.org. This program was brought to you free of charge by the sponsorship of Novus Ordo Watch. See for yourself that the Church of the Second Vatican Council is not in fact the Catholic Church of the Ages. Go to NovusOrdoWatch.org. That's NovusOrdoWatch.org.